Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo, and you are now tuned in to the Climate Frontline Podcast. At the Climate Frontline Podcast, I have the opportunity, the pleasure of talking with community leaders, leaders in industries, as well as artists. And I really do this to be able to change the narrative around how we talk about climate change and specifically whose voices are in, in the middle, who, whose voices do we center. And our community does this one conversation at a time. So today I'm excited to have Donna in the show. Welcome Donna to the show. Hi Alfredo, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you today. Uh, and when I welcome folks into this community, the first question I ask them is, what's your favorite food or snack? Oh, favorite food, tabbouleh, has to be tabbouleh, which is like a, um, a Levantine, like Middle Eastern salad, uh, very famous in Lebanon and Syria. And it's basically parsley, uh, tomatoes, bulgur, um, lots of lemon, lots of olive oil, just all the goodness. I love tabbouleh, fresh mint. <laughs> so I think you give me that, I'll eat it all the time. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and I think that's a nice uh, segue into um, a little bit of your journey. So would you mind sharing a little bit of who you are and what is it that you do in this journey called life? Yeah, so my name is Dana Ghazi. I am. Um, I was born and raised in Damascus, Syria and came to the United States in 2002 as an immigrant. And uh, yeah, I've been here since I moved um I moved across many spaces, um, like uh, between different states, um, but also just kind of like, I feel I've lived different journeys since that time. Right now, what I do professionally is I work as a mental health provider for Arabic speaking refugees and survivors of torture. And I, um, I do that work because it's work that also I become to, to deeply care about um, issues of social uh, justice and also about studying more specifically about war and trauma. And that led me to have my master's degree in conflict resolution and peace studies, which led me to travel to places like Cyprus and Colombia and The Hague and um, learning about Syria and working in Bosnia just to kind of know a little bit more about what what are the factors that create conflict and how do we heal and um, whether it's a violent or non-violent conflict um, healing looks similar and um, and also um, these are systematic issues so while USA might not seem not more recently, but historically hasn't seen like particularly at uh, conflict, actually, when we look at things that, like private prison and, and um, um, occupation of land, of indigenous land, et cetera, that is considered, um, and racial injustices, that is considered the conflict. So um, I am interested in these threads and that's kind of how I would, I would, uh, I would say my journey just kind of takes me through these different paths that that lead to to knowing more about these issues. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And 
I've gotten a handful of uh, inquiries about that the best the divestment campaign that uh, I led on fossil fuels mm -hmm. at Portland State from students now that are, are still wanting to continue these types of initiatives. So this is actually mm -hmm. a good opportunity to also inquire, you know. I know I, I started off as a campaign organizer for the investment of fossil fuels. And I then subsequently started also organizing a campaign to divest from private prisons because those issues are also at the forefront for many black and brown communities, Latino communities. So could you tell me a little bit about the other divestment campaign that we both collaborated on? Yeah, so um, this is um, this is a great way to start talking about how we got to know each other. We were both students at PSU. Uh, I was, uh, at the time, uh, running for student body president, and then I was elected student body president, and I knew so much about your work from even before that because I was following the divestment campaign from fossil fuel. But I think when you became the, um, when, you know, when you joined the team, Uh, as the sustainability director, um, it was a great opportunity to really look at all the ways that are affecting communities, um, BIPOC communities, black and brown communities, immigrant communities, uh, migrant communities, all in, in, and all the connections that actually um, tie us together, uh, whether it's here or across the globe. And I think sharing that vision really led us to work on different campaigns. So it started with fossil fuel, and then we worked on the private prison, divesting from private prison as students. And then the last one was divesting from uh, four companies specifically we looked at that were engaged in um, in maintaining and sustaining the uh, occupation of uh, Uh, of Palestine, um, so the occupied lands, um, uh, Israeli occupied lands of Palestine. And uh, we looked at some of the companies that were interestingly enough, um, ha developing technology that they were testing on, um, on checkpoints and in the occupied land, but they were using actually on the, uh, to also, um, uh, sensor and um, to um, to follow and to you know um, look at at uh, communities that are going between the borders of Mexico and USA so when we looked at that it became apparent to us that these um, that these big companies were uh, were really invested in in um, social injustice issues and we we made it a stand uh for us as students to say we don't want we don't want to be we want to say okay we care about these we see them connected and we're going to divest from them and that happened so uh that was a great win it was a big hard campaign i think because it's politically uh complicated but i think uh eventually it was actually one of the campaigns that brought very very good conversation to campus brought really good organizing um really allowed a lot of engagement on student parts so um so yeah that was uh the last divestment campaign we did yeah yeah thank you for sharing that donna i really appreciate you and um uh, and so 
Yeah, I'm curious to know how is it that you understand climate change and and all these things that you know that I'm passionate about. Like, uh, I'm just curious to know what's your honest perspective on it from from your walk of life. Uh, I mean, we all experience. I think I think we can all know uh, what climate change by experiencing it. But of course, you know, there is like uh, there are levels of awareness. The way I see it personally is that for for people in the Middle East, for example, uh, who are now refugee community and and you know in different parts of the world and have now we are living. Um, in an in a unprecedented uh, refugee crisis. And um, when I think of climate change, I think about war. I think about how war des destroyed um, land, destroyed livelihood, destroyed people's access to, um, to harvesting, to caring, to living in their own homes, right? So to me, um, I see the effect of climate change on many levels because it didn't just start by eruption of war. These issues started early, you know. So in Syria, for example, um, uh, a lot of people do point to the fact that there has been um, years of drought, you know, before uh, the eruption of the revolution and then what became the civil war. But um, Uh, which led, which, you know, co combined with insufficient government uh, measures really led to people like to farmers who were traditionally farmers kind of started leaving to the cities and the urban center, which uh, deprived the, um, these, these spaces from people who care for it, from the farmers who knew how to, you know, this is the, the land of Mesopotamia and the, 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 the uh, fertile crescent and all of that. So these are, these are ancient, ancient farmer um, communities. Uh, but I think with global warming uh, that was bringing uh, drought and that was changing climate, these livelihoods already changed and then they were oversaturated in the city, not doing the work that they have historically done, which created um, a huge uh, gap in wealth, uh, which eventually led to war. But at the same time, also neighboring countries were like Iraq, where, you know, where they were never able to um, fully recover from the invasion of US, um, which destroyed also cities and lives and, um, and changed the whole landscape for the whole Middle East because there was a refugee crisis within the Middle East. There were uh, a million Iraqi refugees just in, in Damascus and around Damascus alone after the invasion. Uh, there were also about 200,000 um, refugees in, from Lebanon in the year of 2003 or 2004, I think, when, um, when uh, during the, also the Israeli invasion on Southern Lebanon. So these factors all contribute to, um, uh, to issues of, um, of changing, of like moving populations that know how to care and sustain for, uh, for their lands, which ultimately I think is a cycle in this climate change, you know, um, 
what the climate change brings and how we can navigate it. Um, and of course, with the, these countries being the global south, not having the access to resources that the global north has, um, you are left with, you know, with multiple issues ranging, ranging from lack of resources to government dictated you know, authoritarian governments to um, to at large just uh, invasions and occupation and international wars. So, um, so I think this is how I see uh, climate change working and affecting the communities. It's really it can be um, it's it's a cycle. It's it's a continued cycle. And then what happens is that these people eventually become refugees in new countries and um, and now you have a whole landscape changed, right? And so how are we sustaining the new, um, the new um, moved population into an area when they haven't, um, when they haven't been historically there um, necessarily? So yeah, so I, it would be interesting to see how these issues we have to look at them as global because these movements are global and these communities now are communities who are further, you know, um, dealing with another layer of being uh, refugees or immigrants, uh, not being able to, uh, you know, uh, maybe speak the language, etc. So you can imagine that the, the, the great gap right now we have to rebuild these communities so they are able to continue being caring for for or caring for lands and able yeah. to do sustainability work. Yeah, and and a big focus in, in this podcast is language, right? And so mm -hmm. how how we engage with communities, language is part of that. And yeah, I think last time we spoke, I took some notes of what you had said and what something that stood out to me is that when you're talking, if you were to talk with the folks you work with now um, who are refugees or immigrants, you wouldn't necessarily approach them and talk about climate change with them, right? You would use other languages. Could you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, um, it's like, I feel, you know, like uh, like a lot of things, like I feel climate change and globalization, global warming, are these are all terms that are created um, academically, like intellectually, perhaps, and not to mean that, it's just that there's, there's a little bit, and also perhaps uh, um, in the West. So what's happening is that these terms are, are understood by communities, of course, but at the same time, they can experience them in ways that are just way more immediate than this big idea about global warming that is just floating out there, right? So I think uh, when you are talking um, to communities directly, um, like, um, like for example, you know, now in Syria, um, after the war with such lack of resources, the lines to get bread are insanely long. Um, people wait, you know, and uh, and with with such, you know, now um, increased poverty, if you can't afford to buy some bread from um, the the supermarket, the government is you know rationing out bread but you have to wait in line that is because you're just cannot get 
access to flour, you cannot get access to grain, right? And so if I'm going to talk to someone about how they are experiencing right. climate change, you talk about like, you know, okay, like, do you remember the days when you didn't have to wait in the line for bread, right? Do you remember the days when you can like, you know, turn on your faucet and get clean water? Like these are, these are the ways that climate change is being experienced. Um, it's it's very immediate. It's really involved in people's life. It's really pushes them to move and leave and abandon. You know, um, it's a different reality, just, right? I, I, they don't know how to. Yeah, exactly. So I think when I want to talk to someone about that, you know, this is how I talk about it. Um, and the ways that it's just like really in your every minute of day to day life. Yeah. Well. I do want to, I do have a couple more questions and uh, yeah, I'm excited to dive into these, but before that, we're going to take a quick break. I guess one other thing I'll mention in terms of environmental journalism is that I, I was just asking this question of why is it that journalists can go into frontline communities that are dealing with climate catastrophes, often for just a really short time, maybe a few days to observe and then gather quotes from people there to then publish about them. But those very people that live there that are being reported on wouldn't even qualify to publish their own stories in the same established outlets. And that is kind of a form of injustice in of itself. And um, my good friend who's an environmental journalist, Janice Kantiri, we talked about this and she spent nine months living in Kiribati to collaborate with the local communities on storytelling. But we were talking about how the extractive approaches to journalism, where the journalists go in for just a few days to grab quotes and blah, 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 that can often lead to narratives that center on victimhood rather than on resilience. But... You know, is this how the communities actually would want to portray themselves? Is this how they would write their own stories? That was Kamea Shane talking about journalism and frontline communities. You can catch more of the conversation with Kamea next week on the next episode of The Climate Frontline. And now back to the show. back now with Donna. Donna, thank you for being in the show again. I know you are also uh, a mother of some uh, wonderful kids. So yeah, I'm excited to hear your perspective from, from that lens as well. Because I know your kids are, you know, experience nature and, and care for nature. So it's not like they don't care for it or you don't care for it, right? Uh, but I also want to find some language that's, that's, uh, that we can share in common. So I'm curious to know how, how is it that you understand occupation and how that may be relevant to someone who's just in the sustainability field and, and maybe caring more or, you know, maybe thinking about trees more. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Wow. Okay. Let me see if I can adequately answer this because I feel this could be like really long conversation seminars on this. Um, and there has been like environmental occupation is, as um, I mean, I don't think if, I don't know if it's a term, but I think it should be. I think there is something that should be called eco occupation, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, going back, I think to, Let's see if this is going to all tie together. But you mentioned my kids. And I think um, I think you particularly like also to, um, you're very passionate about working with youth. And I think the reason why is that um, there is such a, there's such a natural connection that we, uh, we learn, we, we learn as time goes or we unlearn the natural connection that comes just so so instinctively to us with nature um because of you know we live in concrete jungles and and uh and you know nine to five capitalist like uh, schedule and being on the go and the super individualized individualization ideas etc i think there are many things that cut us from um, connecting uh, naturally to the nature around us. But what's um, what's interesting was one time I was driving uh, and my uh, son was five at the time. Um, and we were driving by um, just I probably what was a regular maintenance for a huge tree on the road. Um, uh, you know, we live here pacific northwest it's famous for like these big big beautiful trees but this one just happened to be um uh close to the road and i think uh it was just maintenance was being cut but the minute uh but we were passing by and i said oh look at the tree is being cut and my son started crying and he just had such deep sadness because he's like it's the tree, like how can the tree be cut? Like, I think the tree is sad to be cut, you know? And I don't know, it was such a profound moment of like how how easily that connect that connection was made to him, like how deep he felt it, how, um, how just so um, unsanitized uh, to the, the, how the world like make us get rough and like, disconnect us he he was like he was just completely just you know um open and honest and spontaneous and just feeling that connection so that is the story about my son and I think um we see that we see that working with youth um on projects like there is a, there is a there is a, a kernel there that is just like still very very fresh very caring very connected you know and and that is why I do believe the youth are the ones who are gonna, you know, always lead these these movements. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I think we need to leave it to them, um, and we can maybe only pass like words of wisdom or just sit and witness in learning. Um, so about occupation and sustainability, yeah, I think you know, um, thinking about. Perhaps what's happening is that when we have the conversation around sustainability, at least I think I think it's not in that way anymore. Like people are getting more aware. But I think the way I come, I I I heard or I understood what working for climate um, justice and sustainability look it was always about like yeah, it just seemed 
it just seemed about like let's not cut these trees here or let's you know um let's make sure we recycle or things like that which are all good and we should do but these are things for example that people have done historically in other places right like i think i shared also with you the the stories that i've grew up without calling it recycle always recycling my family always recycled there was nothing that you just toss away everything is repurposed right um but then you come to the to to the usa and you, it's like it's a trend it's a thing right and i think that's why sometimes it's um i think now with with uh more uh with the continued inspirational like um you know leadership from native american indigenous communities we can see how these issues are not just about one thing or the other like like historical occupation um and um of land is is tied to to rivers and it's tied to trees and it's but it's also tied to livelihoods it's also tied to uh, issues like you know um, disparities in healthcare. So to me, that is when we think about sustainability, it really is multi-layered. And it's um, um, and for example, the occupation and 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 the way I've experienced growing up with it is the closest to home, which is the occupied land of Palestine. Um, so the Israeli uh, occupation of of um, um, of the occupied land. So what what I know about it's not it's not uh, um, uh, it's not part of of um, the the occupied land as so to speak. But because Gaza was historically that way, they are you know you look it's it's very strange. Like you look you know they don't have access to their own waters on the Mediterranean, for example. They have, I think, one or two uh, electricity plants that they get bombed all the time. They have checkpoints that make it impossible almost to live. The sewer system is, you know, is um, uh, is completely underfunded and um, there is no, it's hard to come by clean water. Um, it's very hard to find, uh, you know, um, adequate medical care because it just, it's between the borders, you know, you go like because of checkpoints, like an ambulance sometimes cannot get into, into a patient in time because of how many times it gets stops on the Israeli checkpoints. So I think when, when you look at these things and you look at sustainability, how can people try to, if they can't, if they can barely sustain their livelihood under these conditions, how can we think of like, continued sustainability how can we think of like you know enough resources to fight climate change so these conditions keep deteriorating and which means that now you have you know um health disparities of course and now actually it's you know all these issues in pandemic have become more and more apparent right there is no access to health care there is higher mortality rate for for uh for people uh you know in gaza than anywhere else so these are all issues of sustainability because the communities themselves are not sustainable anymore the communities themselves continue to struggle in all these ways so yeah. um so when we think about, you know, yeah, it's um, so that's how I see occupation. I do see it as multi-layered, and at the end, also there's an occupation of the psyche, 
like at some point you just you know if you are if you are um, a community that keeps struggling to just survive and and um continuously just fighting for your own survival um it's that we never you know that how can we even start talking about what that means on the human psyche of these communities right yeah absolutely so, i think yeah what you share the term eco eco occupation and i think what came up for me was the lithium in bolivia because that is being mined to uh you know create uh batteries for electric cars or computers mm -hmm. And then also when I visited some areas in Central America, it was like eco eco sites were, you know, were taken by conservationists or people who came from uh, Northern America and went to retire over there to conserve. So that to me mm -hmm. seems like eco occupation. So yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if that's a, yeah. a term, but how would you define in in you know simple terms what eco eco occupation <laughs> is since you introduced the term i know i mean i don't i think what i was trying to say is that these are issues around um environment particularly and then when we want to think about like who is defining the language who is taking over the resources how is it you know not only i mean i think what you are bringing is like even when you know, these measures are done to supposedly do the positive work to protect the environment. Um, they become, um, they can be harmful because they are coming not within the communities themselves by being imposed, you know, people are even like, you know, uh, there is a, a voj of, uh, how am I gonna say, like, a, Like there is a, a an expat feeling, like um, you know, like you are traveling to take care of that, right? There is that kind of like old colonial mentality in it as well that we don't trust the communities to do it, so we're gonna come and do it, and that's probably another layer, you know, how maybe NGOs deal with trying to interfere. Um, Absolutely. And and yeah, so but like what I was, yeah, but for me, like. I was just trying to say that, okay, if we identify occupation as an occupation, I think it's a very political term. So if we identify occupation in the political term of it and put the environmental occupation, I think what we are trying to, what I was trying to get to is that that kind of level of occupation because we know occupation work on the psyche. We know it works on borders. We know it works on the people and then And another level of it is that it controls just waters and landscape, right? Um, we know, for example, you know, in Yemen, it is it is um, years and years of like you know war and famine, and um, and also like uh, the in the Middle East, there is a there's a water uh, war kind of you know kind of like a, a fight over resources in water, and um, and that's another thing that is very apparent in the occupied land but one thing is that Yemen you know is gonna run out of water very soon I think it's it's um, it's expected in the next decade they're gonna have this crisis where they just don't have any more um, uh, you know water to 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 have 
So, yeah. yeah. So these are, you know, you talk about occupation and effects of war and invasions. Like these are things that just are lasting effects now, right? Like after, even after, uh, you know, uh, troops are gone or there's no occupation or whatever, the occupation on the environment is, just continues regardless. It's a continued effect. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I thank you for sharing that because it makes me more aware and it makes my audience more aware of these issues that are going on. Uh, and I would also add that, you know, I think if there isn't a term uh, eco-occupation, then we can start uh, defining <laughs> it because it, it <laughs> because I think we should be changing that narrative. And I think by, by we start changing the narrative by creating the language that makes sense to us, right? And yes. to, to me, you are very much quote unquote, a climate champion or how I would refer, refer to it more as is you're a healer, right? You're healing your community. And, yeah. uh, and to me, yeah. when you're doing that healing work, at least from my perspective, I'd like to think you have a pretty clear role clarity, right? You, you know, the role that you need to play with your community. And so yeah. I really appreciate that and, and the perspective you bring. And so, uh, yeah, really want to super thank appreciate so that. <laughs> and yeah, I really, I thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. And you, I appreciate you so much for being in this community with me or for my, for you seeing me as being in community with you in this work. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Getting back to, as we wrap up, getting back to, your kids you had mentioned your kids and a main focus of this show is creating uh bringing the personal side of individuals so that youth can come listen to this show understand the language and also just get to know people by their favorite food or their favorite snack you know little things and so i just wanted to ask what is your message for youth who may have just listened to all this and what are the words of wisdom that you would pass on to them as they start thinking about moving forward in life, whether that's through education or not, whether they're in difficult situations, what are some things that they should keep in mind to have that role clarity, to be able to be with their community and heal? Curious to know. Talk to your elders, I think. Talk to your elders, know your history. Um, we, you know, um, it's hard. Like I am, I am a, a, I am an immigrant and my kids are first generation, right? So it makes it harder for them perhaps to just like know, especially that Syria has gone through uh, years of war now. It's like my memory, my image, my nostalgia for Syria, the way I think about it, the way I think about Damascus, for example, is, um, is different than they will ever experience it. It's an organic place, always changing, but also war changes cities dramatically. So, you know, kind of being able to talk about everything that I talked about today with you, regarding climate change and the environment and all these all these like shifts that are happening um related to a place or a region or or you know people who are moving it might be harder if it wasn't that my kids have their grandparents around that you know we sit at a table and as 
my mom cook a traditional Syrian food, we start t- talking about how it was back home at the time, right? They, there's a there's there's a link that they will start making, and if they don't make that link, they will think, you know, you only can get hope by knowing that how how things you know how things could be better and how things were before. And that is also like history by itself is is perhaps a sustainability cycle in that way, right? Uh, so I would say for the youth, like, you know, trust your intuition and vision for the future and connect it to, to roots, connect it to why it's important. It's only important because you can see its effect on communities and, and around you, the elders, you know, the, the people on the front line. So um, I think a lot of people who come from fighting on the front line uh, or are workers on the front line, you know, they already live. Like, I think that is true specifically for a lot of brown communities, black communities, um, BIPOC communities. They live in multi-generational households. That's why these narratives become so important because they are able to hear it and live it, right? So I would say to the youth, like be in community with your elders, learn the history, learn the story, know your ancestry. Um, And so you can reclaim the narrative and you can create visions that are coming from your own history about where you wanna be. Um, decolonize the psyche <laughs> in that way, right? So, what a decolonize simple, the work. What a simple yet loving gift that you have given the youth with that message. I think it's pretty um, understandable and, and pretty straightforward to to be with your elders and and find out a little bit of your history, or at the very best, you know, have a have a conversation, right? And yeah. Dana, how are how are some ways or what are some ways that folks can reach out to you or stay in touch with you to to inquire and develop more relationships, if you will? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So the best way would be either my email, which is just my first initial D dot Gazi, G-H-A-Z-I, my last name, at me.com, M-E.com. And then I am on LinkedIn and I love connecting with people there because it has like the most kind of, um, the, the best way for me to be able to show my work and also get to know other people's work and see how we're connected. I would, uh, you know, and in the future, perhaps I'm, I'm working to have like my own, you know, either um, presence online and some other ways. But for now, these are the ways that are best to connect with me. Awesome. Thank you for that, Donna. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being in the show. Thank you so much, Alfredo. Likewise. Okay, well, that was my conversation with Dana Ghazi. I really appreciate her perspective, her, her lived experience, as well as her expertise with her own community. She is indeed a healer and really admire the work that she does right now, has done and will continue to do. So be sure to check out some of Dana's work or reach out to her if you want to have a conversation. You are now at the Climate Frontline podcast. You have tuned into another conversation where we change the narrative around how climate change is talked about by centering those communities who are at the front line of climate change. You can find us in different podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Be sure to check out the show notes for any additional 
information or links that you want to follow. I am looking for some artists as well as any speakers that you may suggest for the show. So please send those to climate for online podcast at gmail.com. And until then, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.